podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning, and my name is Alan. We are now entering the brave new world of the 1900s, and the very first movie of any interest in that century is the title fight between Jim Jeffries and Tom Sharkey. Things had happened since the days of the Corbett-Fitzsimmons fight, America fought a small war with Spain, although it seemed mighty big to America at the time. And since then, a bit of nationalism swelled the country's sense of pride. Now we are on the other side of the war, and discussions over prize fights returned. The Corbett Fitzsimmons fight was quite a sensation back in 1897, and title talks continued into the next year. And frankly, the war news buried fights in general, well into the back pages of the newspapers. The only thing the public really cared about was the war. Even after it slipped into negotiations in autumn of 1898. By that time, other challengers were issuing their declarations of battle against Robert Fitzsimmons, now that he was the champ, and Jim Corbett who, although he had lost, was still considered a formidable figure in boxing. At that time, two new names arose, Kid McCoy and Tom Sharkey. Now, talking about boxing is not the intent of this podcast, so I should also mention that during this time, the return of boxing as a subject for film was welcome news to some American film companies. Even the Edison Company, which really didn't have a dog in this fight, was eager to take advantage of this situation whenever an opportunity appeared. So let's briefly look at the situation in 1898. At the beginning of 1897, Jim Corbett was the acclaimed champion of the world, and a British boxer raised in New Zealand by the name of Bob Fitzsimmons, had been clamoring to take a shot at Corbett. Fitzsimmons had been training in San Francisco and had defeated all comers, making him one of the best fighters to challenge Corbett. Corbett had built a vaudeville career out of his boxing skills and was even starring on stage, but the pressure to take on Fitzsimmons was very great. Not to mention that there was also a good amount of moving picture money involved. It was difficult to find a place to hold the fight, as many people still believed that boxing was too violent a sport to be legalized. Finally, a bout was fought in Nevada. Fitzsimmons defeated Corbett in 14 rounds, and the film was the most successful boxing movie so far. Enoch Rector, one of the Latham's co-investors, managed to successfully film the entire regulation bout, and as it was filmed in the Nevada sun, it was well lit. The film was on the market for well over three years. Corbett's manager, William Brady, claimed the film made $750,000, although film historian Charles Musser figures the number was probably closer to 100000 
Still, Brady's response shouldn't be written off simply as a made-up figure by some inflated blowhard. He will go on to run a film company in the 1910s. After claiming the championship, Fitzsimmons, like Corbett before him, announced that he was retiring, or, as he saw it, he would not fight anyone who wasn't a real challenger. Instead, he started training his sparring partner, Yank Kenny. So with boxing's greatest fighters now supposedly retired, a new crop of boxers started to battle against each other, each claiming that they were the world's greatest. In an article written in the summer of 1898 by boxer Peter Kelly, he said that no less than seven men claimed to be the world's champion, and he explained why. Fitzsimmons, because he knocked out Corbett, the acknowledged champion. Corbett, because he knocked out John L. Sullivan, the champion of the world. McCoy, because since neither Corbett nor Fitzsimmons will fight him, he argues that they are afraid. Goddard, because he knocked out Mayer, who stood a good chance with Fitzsimmons. Mayer, because he knocked out a man Corbett was afraid of. Sharkey, because he won more victories for the length of time he has fought than any other man. And Jeffries, because he's the youngest man in the profession and the most promising. These will be the men who will primarily be involved in the battles of the world's championship over the next several years, and they will be the most important participants in the boxing movies. Thanks to the press, the early movies, and the high-class athletic clubs, boxing was becoming a status sport, and this happened within a period of 20 years. What the Marcus of Queensbury had hoped for was coming to pass in America. Money was raising the level of boxing from thug-like street brawling to a sport attended by rich men and women in private boxes. But if boxing was developing a sense of cachet, then why was it banned almost everywhere? Much of this had to do with the developing lines that were separating an older culture from a new one. This is a subject that I'll delve into more deeply in future episodes, as it affects the direction of the movies through most of the silent era. But for now, let's just say the Victorians were mostly against boxing, while a growing number of modernists were for it. In the eyes of the Victorians, boxing was violent, and it invited gambling into its circle. There were Victorians who saw this as a kind of cruel Roman blood sport, and any allusion that it made to the Roman Empire was meant to suggest vulgarity and barbarism. But the modernists had a growing interest for things like boxing, the movies, and other entertainments, and some of that joy came about due to a growing resentment towards the Victorians' moralist attitudes. In hindsight, it just seems to be a difference between generations. But at the time, it seemed as if America's young people were simply selling their souls to the devil. At the beginning of 1898, Boxing news concerned itself with its own legality. Some cities were making noise about tighter restrictions, 
while a few saw the band as rather foolish and narrow-minded. A San Francisco court ruled that private boxing establishments were illegal, but that didn't stop the talk about the various local bouts that continued to be discussed in the press. St. Louis's police commissioner suggested that it was illegal in his fair city, but the mayor, even though he was not a fight fan, said that the police commissioner didn't know what he was talking about. He said that when St. Louis banned fighting, it concerned street brawls, not privately organized boxing matches. It was also admitted that private athletic clubs were springing up like mushrooms in April, according to the San Francisco Call newspaper. Things were much more heated in New York City. On the whole, the Tammany organization supported boxing and even had control over two private athletic clubs. But there were some, like William Brady, who managed James Corbett and preferred the Coney Island Athletic Club, proving that you didn't need to like Tammany Hall in order to like boxing. Of course, as Tammany was democratic, the New York Republicans despised boxing and made many attempts to ban it. That is, except the New York Republicans' rising star, Assistant Secretary of Navy Theodore Roosevelt, who admired boxers and the sport and had occasionally boxed in private clubs. But then the war came. Teddy fought with the Rough Riders, and boxing disappeared from the newspapers. There was a talk of a bout between Kid McCoy and Joe Choinsky, but that disappeared when McCoy said he wasn't in condition. Finally, in 1899, as the war began to fade into history, boxing came back into view with the promise that Kid McCoy would fight Tom Sharkey. While the McCoy-Choinsky fight would never come off, Tom Sharkey beat Gus Rulin at the Coney Island Athletic Club in a little over two minutes. In his still lingering exuberance, he yelled from the ring that he was challenging any of the top fighters in the world to a fight. Through his manager, he later refined that offer by singling out McCoy. While McCoy offhandedly accepted the offer, he was more distracted by his upcoming battle with Jim Corbett. McCoy had offered to fight either Corbett or Fitzsimmons, and Corbett accepted. Sharkey tried to horn in to the fight by offering to box both McCoy and Corbett on the same night, but no one seemed to take the offer seriously. Through the summer of 1898, two boxers prepared for their September fight in Buffalo. But in mid-August, Corbett got the news that his parents were dead. Apparently, his father, who had been suffering from mental health issues, had risen early one morning, dressed, and then shot his wife before shooting himself. Corbett was stunned. According to the newspaper account, he broke down and wept like a child, and his manager and trainer announced that the fight would have to be postponed. It was felt that Corbett wouldn't be able to fight until at least the beginning of October, and some felt that the emotional blow would require a longer time than that. Surprisingly, Bob Fitzsimmons offered to replace Corbett in his fight against McCoy. McCoy accepted the offer, but Corbett did return to training after the funeral. 
Fitzsimmons' offer highlights a remarkable thing about these boxers that hardly gets noticed. The top boxers are really a small group of men, and despite the public bluster and incidents that happened before and after bouts, only these other men knew the ins and outs of a successful boxer, including the fame and dedication to the art of boxing and the real opportunities it offered a lower-class man to rise in society. These men not only fought each other, they would attend each other's fights, defend each other to the press, compliment each other in public, appear in vaudeville together, support each other in outside ventures, and, in a clinch, step in to honor a commitment when things went wrong. In a very odd way, they were their own band of brothers. Through all of this, Tom Sharkey kept searching for a major contender who would fight him. He also announced to the press that he had made $60,000 from boxing the previous year. This money would do him well when he opened the best-remembered of the private New York athletic clubs. There were people who believed that the best fights were held in these clubs, not out in the wild, unincorporated territories far from legalities. There was something about the clubby atmosphere that could not be replaced when the championship fights were held in large open areas. As one writer said, these clubs were places where the kind of men who did not want to be seen were found. These being the gamblers, the bettors, the bookies, and the men who attempted to fix the fights. No club had a better ambience for that kind of man than Sharkey's. And no one captured that look better than the American realist painter George Bellows, who painted a number of classic fight scenes set at Sharkey's club. It's this reason why the film men were attempting to move the cameras into the clubs at this time rather than taking their camera out into the deserts of Nevada. By the end of September 1898, the possibilities of the Corbett-McCoy fight were growing slim. Apparently, Corbett's name seemed to doom any fight he was involved with. When boxers with little public visibility appeared at a club, the fights would go on without a hitch. But once a celebrity, such as Corbett, became involved, the news got out, and pressure would be applied to local politicians to cancel the fight. This seemed to be the case with the Corbett and McCoy fight. While the Hawthorne Athletic Club of Buffalo, New York, promised that the fight would go on, after the death of Corbett's parents, McCoy was having doubts about a successful fight in western New York State. Management at Hawthorne's promised to arrange a fight somewhere in the state, but the governors of Ohio and Indiana promised to break up any boxing match held in their state, and if necessary, they'd use the National Guard. Indiana, by the way, was Kid McCoy's home state. So much for hometown heroes when it came to boxing at that time. I suppose it's not surprising that in the wake of this growing fiasco, another fiasco arose of even greater proportions. Corbett claimed that he'd be ready to fight by October 1st, and after the problems in Buffalo, New York, he accepted an offer to fight Tom Sharkey in late November on his home ground, the Lennox Athletic Club in New York City, which was a Tammany club. 
When the fight started, Corbett seemed old and unprepared. Still, he had fast feet, unlike Sharky, who was a methodical pounder. For a time, Corbett handled Sharky by peppering him with unconvincing blows. This was to raise Sharky's anger and cause him to lose his cool. But that didn't happen. Over time, Sharky started to land some hard blows on Corbett, but the former champion carried on. After several rounds of this, Corbett also started to land some hard punches, but the two men also started clinging to each other in exhaustion. This last issue had recently been a cause for complaint in the world of boxing. The Queensberry rules said that there should be no hitting in a clinch, but many felt that the Queensberry rules were not well defined, leaving some clubs to ignore them and a campaign was started to rewrite the rules to be more specific. Sharkey, the greatest hitter of his age, had a reputation for hitting hard while clenching. This left Corbett open to much pounding from Sharkey, including occasionally hitting a below the belt. In the ninth round, as Corbett and Sharkey were again clenching, Corbett's second, Con McVeigh appeared out of the thickly smoky air and suddenly jumped into the ring, demanding the referee stop the clenching. This was done as a large crowd of noisy fight fans cheering and yelling looked on. The referee called the fight, declaring Sharky the winner, and declared all bets off. The crowds roared in anger and shock, and many started to yell that the entire fight was a fix. Police had to escort the fighters out of the building and away from the club. Later interviewed, the ref admitted that he called off all bets because he believed there was a fix between Corbett and his sparring partner McVeigh, and McVeigh admitted his concern for the abuse of the clenching as a way to hit Corbett below the belt. Unmentioned, but probably in the minds of some of the fight fans, was that Sharky fought in Tammany clubs and may have been in cahoots with them. Those who had laid big bets on Sharky were the ones who were the angriest, but even Corbett fans believed the ref might have been paid off. Now, boxing had faced two black eyes in a number of months, but support for the sport continued to rise. In particular, there was a growing sense of respect for those who boxed by some of the people who first dismissed the sport. A small number of ministers came out for the sport of boxing as a way for young men and boys to develop a sense of manhood. There was also a move to teach women how to box. Self-defense was starting to look like a positive idea for both genders. In January, Kid McCoy and Tom Sharkey finally met at the Lennox Athletic Club in Manhattan. Sharkey won in nine rounds. It was an even match and both men were outstanding, but Sharkey, as the game's best pounder, eventually wore McCoy down. His manager was also given credit for a sharp understanding of McCoy's strengths and weaknesses. At first it seemed as if McCoy would get the best of Sharkey, having floored him twice. But following his manager's advice, Sharkey kept his cool and outplayed McCoy. 
Sharkey was now the man that Fitzsimmons was to beat. That fight would come soon enough. In early 1899, two important acts happened to further the case of boxing. The first was that the Marquis of Queensbury rules were now refined to provide much more detail about what was to be expected in a legal bout. This was a long list of rules, most of them already in practice. For example, one rule established that the ring would be 24 feet square. Yes, this was already an established rule in boxing. Another stated that a boxer who was down had 10 seconds to return to his feet and to the center of the ring. Also, one knee down counted as being down wasn't down, had to return to his corner. Fighters could wrap their hands in medical bandages for protection, but not in a way to make their fists harder. Normal details like that. More importantly, it completely banned clinching and required the ref to break it up. The second important act was that both California and Colorado both passed laws making boxing legal in private clubs within their states. Of course, legalization always comes with a cost, as both state governments required the clubs to purchase annual licenses to hold boxing bouts. And the fees were not cheap. In California, the cost would be $5,000 a year, in 1899 money. Still, the money that the clubs were making from championship prize fights was worth it. In May, Tom Sharkey took off for the East in order to prepare for a fight with Peter Mayer at the Lennox Athletic Club. He told his adoring audience waiting at the Charleston, South Carolina train depot that when he beat Mayer, he would probably take on the winner of the Fitzsimmons-Jeffries fight. The Fitz-Jeff fight would be the first major attempt to film a fight since the Corbett-Fitzsimmons bout in 1897, and reason for the filming had much to do with Jeffrey's manager, William Brady. Since Corbett had retired, Brady had been acting more as a booking agent for a small number of fights, but Brady had spied Jeffries out west and realized how good he could become. One of the first things he and Jeffries did was issue a blanket challenge to all major boxers. Originally, Peter Mayer, who was the only black boxer in the group, was Jeffries' first choice. But Mayer's demand for a $20,000 guaranteed fee was considered way too high for a prize fight, and Jeffries eventually agreed to fighting Sharky at some time in the future. Remarkably, Fitzsimmons, of all people, also agreed to fight Jeffries. Much of this had to do with both fighters having ties to William Brady. Fitzsimmons and Jeffries would fight at the Coney Island Club in early June. The most remarkable thing about the fight was the transformation of Jeffries from a rather graceless fighter who hit hard and held his ground to one who now had grace and could move. While he and Fitzsimmons both could hit, Fitzsimmons seemed to be under the illusion that he could handle Jeffries, at least until it was too late. By then, Jeffries was the one who had control of the fight. 
he wore Fitzsimmons down and by the 11th round was able to force him to the floor through sheer exhaustion. It seems that Fitzsimmons went into the fight expecting Jeffries to be the kind of fighter that he no longer was. That change may have come about through Brady, now acting as his manager. After all, Brady had dealt with Fitzsimmons before, when his former star, Corbett, lost to Fitz. Brady had a lot going for him as a fight manager. Like I said, he had a working knowledge of the best fighters of his day, but he also had experience in something else. While other managers and fighters were primarily set on prize money and large purses as the path to wealth, Brady understood the value of the movies and the money that could be made from exhibiting those fight films. It was Brady who would bring American Mutoscope and Biograph into his confidence, and that deal would bring in a lot of extra money, far beyond what the others could grasp. 10,000 people were seated in the club to witness the Fitzsimmons-Jeffries bout, with the best seats going for $5. As a side event, these people also witnessed the first major attempt to film a fight since the Corbett-Fitzsimmons fight. At the time of the Corbett-Fitzsimmons fight, Enoch Rector's spin-off company, known as Veriscope, handled the filming. This involved three large cameras installed in a booth manned by several people. This booth took up one side of the ring, leaving only three other sides for the crowd to witness the fight. This time around, the idea was still the same, but it was a different company with a different concept. Rector and Veriscope were now gone. Mutoscope Biograph and Koopman, Kasler, and Marvin were in. When Veriscope was used, the cameras recorded the fight through tinted glass, partially to control the bright sunlight. Now, with Mutoscope Biograph acting as the film company of record, the opposite was the problem. The fight was going to be inside a club arena, so extra lighting had to be brought in. Mutoscope Biograph set up 40 extra arc lights that were placed high above the ring around it. They also built a large stand that took up a large footprint in the seating area. There would be a few rows of seats between the stand and the ring, but the stand and cameras did block a lot of the viewing from behind. One of William Randolph Hearst's sports writers was up there and complained about not being able to see the fight. As for the people up front, the arc lights produced so much heat that it must have been a problem, and the rumor is that the lights did a bit of scalding upon the heads of the fighters. To the benefit of those near the fight, about half of the arc lights went out early in the fight. Once Metoscope Biograph started the post-production of the film, they discovered that the images were too dark. This created a real problem for Brady and Mutoscope, but surprisingly, fight fans were willing to watch the fight despite the poor quality, and Brady and Mutoscope Biograph were able to recoup some of their money. Jim Jeffries was now the world's greatest boxer, and among the men who were challenging for the title, Tom Sharkey was now the closest to challenging him. 
That would happen towards the end of the year, but before that fight came together, another championship bout highlighted another problem with sports films. In Dan Stribel's book on fight films, he mentions a bantamweight competition where a process dubbed the sportograph was used. This time, it was filmed beyond Manhattan at the outdoor facility for Westchester County's Athletic Club. It seems that a number of people in the sports film realm were involved, possibly including William Brady. So was Edwin Porter, just months before he started working for Edison. British boxer Peddler Palmer and American Terry McGovern starred in this well-made fight film. Unfortunately, McGovern decked Peddler in the first round, leaving the investors with no fight to exhibit. Oops. The day after Jeffries became world champion, as he was talking with the press, he announced that he would fight anyone of his challengers, giving Sharkey first chance. His remark probably was due to the previous world champions giving up on boxing once they proved that they were the best. As far as Jeffries was concerned, he was not going to back out of boxing. He did make one qualification. He said he wanted a smaller ring, one that was 16-foot square rather than a 20-foot square one. The reasoning behind that request was his claim that Sharkey spent a lot of time avoiding Jeffries the last time the two met pugilistically. At that time, Brady also mentioned that it would be a while before Jeffries faced his next fight, as he had lots of commitments to meet over the next several months. The months leading up to the fight were rather quiet, as both men preferred to stick to their business rather than participate in the attention-drawing schemes in the press. Even the odds were fairly close, considering that one man was now world champion and the other had ducked his way out of a knockout in the past. The fight would be held in Brady's Coney Island Athletic Club, and as the manager of the world's champion, he wanted to guarantee that the money would continue to roll in during those times when Jeffries wasn't fighting. The details of the fight were agreed upon by September. And it was at that time that Brady, along with Sharkey's manager, Tom O'Rourke, again approached Mutoscope Biograph about filming the fight. Both Brady and Mutoscope Biograph had learned from their mistakes and set out to improve the filming of this fight. After the failure to capture the images of the Fitzsimmons-Jeffries fight and after the success of a number of those staged fight productions, there was a sense that the movie people needed to get this right. Originally, there was talk of actually opening the roof of Brady's Athletic Club, but that was nixed, and a much more sensible plan was agreed upon by Brady, in which a good amount of money would be invested in a lot of arc lighting and the hiring of knowledgeable men to operate the lighting system. Dynamos were set up in the clubhouse, and feed wires were run to operate 400 arc lamps. Over $6,000 was laid out for the lights, the wires, the generators, the carpenters, the electricians, the framing, the wiring, and the installation of the lights. It also included seven and a half miles of camera film. As with the Fitzsimmons-Jeffries fight, 
it was understood that Mutoscope Biograph used a larger film than did Edison, four times larger. This would create a much clearer image, but it would also use a lot more film. And that film would be recording up to 25 rounds of a fight. In September, an experimental fight was photographed, and it proved to be quite remarkable in its imagery. The fight was a brutal, long fight, with both men becoming covered in blood. At first, Jeffries believed he could take out Sharkey, but he soon realized it would not be an easy job. Both men battered each other for the full 25 rounds. In the end, Sharkey had broken ribs and a broken hand, which became useless in the last rounds. It was possibly the uselessness of his broken left hand that led the ref to believe that Jeffries was still champion. A broken Sharkey cried inconsolably, but proclaimed he wanted a rematch. This would come a few years later. As for the Mutoscope Biograph films, they looked great. This was the proof that the Latham brothers were looking for a half-decade earlier. The problem was that a number of camera spies had leaked into the facility in order to create a hybrid boxing film, a scheme agreed upon by the Edison Company and Blackton and Smith over at Vitagraph. And we can't forget the faked film that was also created by Sigmund Lubin in Philadelphia. But it was the Edison Vitagraph project that was the real thorn in the side of Brady and Mutoscope Biograph. Several men and a woman managed to conceal cameras and film and bring them into Brady's club to film the fight. Details of this deception are sketchy and vary in the different sources I've read. Apparently, James White, who was now Edison's head cameraman and filmmaker, was one of the spies. So was Albert Smith, one of the partners in Vitagraph. Also included was the vaudeville team of Joe Howard and Ida Emerson. While Howard would be more remembered for writing some of the most famous sentimental songs of the period, such as I Wonder Who's Kissing Her Now, at the time he and Ida were a singing duo. She was famous for singing one of the very first ragtime hits, written by Joe, of course, Hello, My Baby. According to Dan Stribel, the two used cameras in their act and were able to smuggle or deceive their way into the fight. I've also read that Joe Howard was the mastermind behind the scheme. Another source I read suggests that quite a number of men smuggled in cameras. If that were true, each person could record a round and then the film would be assembled, showing the fight from different vantage points for each round. When the Pinkertons came around, the cameras would be surreptitiously handed from one culprit to the other. Despite this advanced deception, the film had lots of heads blocking the boxing scenes, but interest in the fight was so great that it was easy to deceive people into attending a viewing of the fight. Brady's and the Mutoscope Biograph's real problem came after the fight. Both Lubin and Edison had copyrighted the names of their films before they even recorded the fight. In this case, Lubin had the jump. He was rather experienced in making fight films based on the Telegraph scripts, and his film titles were usually prefaced with 
reproduction of, whatever fight. But what was it reproducing? The fight or a fight film? The public was not so sure, so they attended. On the other hand, Edison and Vitagraph were not as experienced at this deception. At least Edison's company wasn't. Vitagraph had pulled its share of stunts, but they were rather innocuous, so it never amounted to much. The Edison Company believed that having copyrighted a title like the Jeffries Sharkey fight, they could suppress the Mutoscope Biograph film and have the field to themselves. But Brady was just as savvy with lawyers as was Edison, and he sued, claiming that the Edisons and the Vitagraphs had illegally filmed the fight and that the print should be confiscated. It was. Still, it wouldn't be until early 1900 that the Mutoscope Biograph film of the Jeffrey Sharkey fight started to spread around America, becoming what was probably the biggest cinematic box office success since the Spanish-American War films. Next time, we'll look at the most popular film genre of the period, newsreels. We'll look at the major events and see if we can spot a few cinematographers making those films. So thanks for listening, and stop by to listen next time.